is a indeed a very special grand rounds as the this pandemic continues to evolve uh, and today we're very very lucky we have uh, really one of the world's experts in, in vaccinology and uh, and you have seen him everywhere uh, in the news media uh, written you know read his books but more importantly read his uh, chapters and articles related to the, the science of vaccinology and coronavirus uh, but before I introduce Peter Hotez uh, uh, who really is is just a wonderful that he's been able to take time to meet with us this morning, I, uh, I want to welcome you to the Milton Markowitz Honorary Lecture. Uh, many of you do know Dr. Markowitz or, or knew Dr. Markowitz. Some of you may not have known Dr. Markowitz. Uh, this lecture was initiated 23 years ago to honor one of the most remarkable pediatricians of our time, and I think Peter will agree with that. Uh, many of you in the audience knew Dr. Markowitz. Many of you learned the art of pediatric medicine from Dr. Markowitz, and all of us uh, without a doubt here in this institution have benefited from his wisdom and, and, and foresight. Dr. Markowitz was born in June of 1918. That's uh, it's an interesting year, isn't it, the, from the last uh, pandemic. Uh, and, and so you can imagine it was just evolving when he was a baby. Uh, it was also uh, D-Day. That's another important thing. And I do want to recognize all our veterans uh, and all of those who have fallen in the service of this great country. And we celebrate it. Uh, yesterday we had the Memorial Day, and I think it's very important to remember in the middle of all of this. Next month, Dr. Marcos would have been 102 years old. Remarkable. Dr. Marcos was, re was recruited in 1968 to the newly established University of Connecticut School of Medicine, and he was the first chairman of the Department of Pediatrics. In 1969, Dr. Markowitz and his wife, Selma, and their children, David, Martha, Stephen, and Alice, moved to the Hartford area. And starting from scratch, he built the Department of Pediatrics. At the same time, developed excellent working relations with Hartford Hospital and Newington Children's Hospital. And his vision is what led to the strong Department of Pediatrics and made possible, eventually, the establishment of Connecticut Children's Medical Center. So we, owed, uh, we really owe him a lot. Uh, he is somebody who is remarkable. It would take me a whole six hours to tell the story of Dr. Markowitz, uh, who has been highlighted in one of the AAP uh, sections. And uh, if anyone is interested a little more, please send me an email and I'll, sh I'll share with you this remarkable history of a, of a pioneer, uh, a true, uh, amazing academician uh, par excellence. But now to introduce the lecturer, uh, we have Dr. Peter Hotez, who you can see there, and uh, uh, hopefully you can see him on the, on the webcast. Uh, Peter is a proud citizen of Hartford. Uh, he was born a, a few years ago, I think in the late 1950s. I want to give away his age, although he may, be, he may tell you. Um, and uh, Peter, as you know, is an outstanding American scientist. He's a pediatrician. Uh, he's a great advocate in the field of global health, vaccinology, and neglect neglected tropical diseases. He's the funding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and professor of pediatrics and molecular virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also the director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development and the Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair in Tropical Pediatrics. Peter has served in multiple uh, capacities as a leader, as president of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, and as the founding editor-in-chief of PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases, one of the most outstanding journals that we have seen come up over the last 10 years. He's also the co-director of the Parasites Without Borders, a global nonprofit organization with a focus on those suffering from parasitic diseases in subtropical environments. He's an elected member of the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Medicine, and in 2011, and this is an important piece for me, is that uh, Peter received an award from the Pan-American Health Organization, which is the Abraham Horwitz Award. Dr. Horwitz was the, uh, the Director General of the Pan-American Health Organization in the late 60s and 70s, 
And uh, he recruited my father to the Pan American Health Organization in 1972. Uh, in, in, sorry, not in 1972, in 1974. So we do have a link, and I, I had a chance to meet Dr. Horwitz. So I was very pleased to hear that Peter had received that award from, from this individual who was an amazing public health leader. In addition to continuing his work on vaccines already in clinical trials for hookworms, schistosomiasis, Peter currently leads a team of researchers in developing vaccines against other diseases, including Leishmaniasis, Chagas disease, SARS-1, MERS, and now, of course, SARS-CoV-2. He's a world authority with passion and love for the world's less fortunate. He has an equal impact in prevention and practical, practical treatment of neglected tropical diseases. He has had an exemplary, exemplary life and a career but most importantly, Peter is a dear colleague and friend, and I'm certainly honored to have him back in Connecticut via Zoom to give the 23rd Milton Markowitz Award uh, lecture. Uh, so, Peter, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, we will have a lot of people joining in. We'll have questions at the end if we have time, but uh, mostly I really want to hear what you have to say. And Welcome to Hartford via Zoom. Peter? Well, thank you, Dr. Salazar. Juan, it's great to see you again. Uh, uh, we were just chatting before. The last time I saw Dr. Salazar was before the apocalypse occurred in, in December. <laughs> we were at a meeting in uh, San Francisco, and even I don't think we could have envisioned uh, how life would change so uh, dramatically. But I am really happy to see my friend Dr. Salazar to be back uh, at, at Connecticut uh, Children's Hospital. And I'll say a couple of words about uh, those very important links uh, to, to Hartford in, in a minute. Uh, let me share my screen. Hopefully the technology, I'm always pleasantly surprised when the technology actually works, uh, but let's see if we can change the slides. This is the, uh, I like to write books also. This is the title of my next book, which turned out to be pretty timely, Preventing the Next Pandemic Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of uh, Anti-Science uh, Disclosures. I have uh, uh, non-revenue generating patents for vaccines to prevent parasitic worm infections. The anti-vaxxers allege that I'm making, secretly making millions of dollars on these patents. Uh, my wife, Ann, says, if only. So nothing yet, and I doubt uh, we will. Uh, very interesting Hartford connection. So I was, as Dr. Salazar mentioned, I was born in Hartford and raised in West Hartford, went to Hall High School, and uh, spent the first 18 years of my life, uh, in uh, 20, uh, yeah, 18 years of my life in Hartford, Connecticut. And one of my important role models I don't know how many people will still remember Dr. Schwartz, uh, but he was uh, um, long affiliated with the University of Connecticut. He uh, was my pediatrician and a great role model for me. He joined the medical staff of Hartford Hospital in 1957 and had a practice in Bishop's Corner in West Hartford. And this is from his obituary. He passed away in 1995. Um, his wife uh, worked uh, with him in, in his clinic and he was real old school, and as it says here in his obituary, rather, rather than doing a rapid strep test, she said he did the more conventional, time-consuming test to make sure of the diagnosis. The expertise was Dr. Schwartz and, and, and listening to and treating children. He had done this for so many years, and he was ex an extremely expert in what he did. And he was a role model, and he actually introduced me to a uh, professor at the University of Connecticut, uh, a guy named Bob Poynton, who's a professor of microbiology at UConn. And my first, this was what UConn looked like back then. Uh, this was my first job in science. I uh, was working uh, in the microbiology department at the University of Connecticut when I, was, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. And so I have tremendous uh, gratitude and lifelong affection 
for the University of Connecticut uh, Health Science Center and, and for Connecticut Children's and congratulate everybody on all their, their successes. Uh, just nothing but warm feelings uh, for keeping links with Connecticut Children's uh, Medical Center. Uh, I'm going to start here uh, and talk about my, my, a key premise of my talk today is to say that we have made extraordinary progress in vaccinating the world's children and developing new vaccines. And I'm going to start off talking about some of the great successes that we've had, but then flip things around and say how things have gone wrong uh, in the last five years that slowed a lot of our progress and in some cases halted or even reversed our progress. But I'm going to start initially with a good news part of the story, which is that if you look uh, since 2000 when the Millennium Development Goals were launched, these shared goals for uh, addressing the plight of what was then called the bottom billion, the billion people in the world who lived on no money, lived below the World Bank poverty figure of a dollar a day, one of the big initiatives that was launched was to create the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, at that time in 2000 and with it Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. Now we call it just by the acronym Gavi Alliance. It's based in, Gen in Geneva, funded by governments all over the world. Initially launched with $750 million of Gates Foundation money. And you can see that there's been enormous progress because there was a huge push to expand vaccinating the world's uh, children and uh, look at the progress. I mean, 83% reduction in the number of kids who died from measles. Similar story with uh, pertussis and tetanus and haemophilus influenza type B and diphtheria. Uh, these pictures on the right are these fantastic images from uh, one of my favorite uh, black and white image photographers, Sebastião Salgado from Brazil, who spent a year going around the world taking photos of children getting vaccinated, especially with the oral polio vaccine. It's a very moving set of images if you ever wanna take the time to look at it. Uh, and uh, my own experience as a pediatric house officer really cemented uh, for me uh, the, the power of vaccines. I was an MD PhD student at Rockefeller and Cornell and then did a pediatric residency at Mass General Hospital, which I, I absolutely loved. And, but at that time, uh, I was admitting a child every couple of weeks with haemophilus influenza uh, meningitis. And pediatricians of my age and older still remember that they had microscopes in the emergency room and there was a requirement for the pediatric house officer to do the gram stain on the cerebral spinal fluid. And when you did a gram stain like this on the right, uh, your heart sank because you saw the gram negative organisms and polymorphic nuclear leukocytes and you knew this child was in trouble and was, a good chance would have likely permanent neurologic injury, deafness, or, or perhaps not even survive. And, and uh, that took a big toll on not only the families of the kids that I was taking care of, but also the house staff itself. I remember uh, as an intern in 1987, uh, my first son was born, Matthew, and I was terrified about bringing homophilus influenza type B home from the hospital. And back then, all you could do was take rifampicin uh, which had the unpleasant side effect of turning your urine orange. So I remember peeing orange for the whole time I was a house officer. But then the world changed. And the, the big change was there had been earlier generations of the homophilus influenza type B vaccine. But the big breakthrough came when John Robbins and Rachel Schneerson at the NIH figured out if they took the polyribophosphate capsule, 
conjugated at the protein. It worked in, in young infants. And uh, that made a huge difference because that simple, well, not so simple, but a technical change resulted in a vaccine that worked in young infants to the point then we pretty, pretty much eradicated Haemophilus influenza type B. So it was very powerful having uh, the personal experience of admitting a child every couple of weeks as a house officer to one that uh, totally, I taught purely for historic interest. So by the time I was a junior faculty attending at Yale, uh, the house officers would look at me when I would talk about Hib, like I used to look at my attendings when they would talk about diphtheria or, or tetanus, it was, it was that dramatic. And of course, we've gone on to additional successes with uh, uh, efforts to eliminate uh, polio. We're now down to two or three countries with polio. And even measles, this extraordinary story of how we've uh, gone now uh, to the point where we can even talk about the elimination of measles. And that's extraordinary uh, in part because uh, measles has such a high reproductive number between 12 and 18 the fact that we can even talk about eliminating measles means that we're uh, targeting 90 to 95% of the kids with the measles vaccine. Reproductive number refers to the number of individuals, of course, that would be infected if somebody else got, got, got the illness. And measles is the, probably one of the most contagious pediatric uh, infections that, that we know about. Uh, so the fact that we can talk about eradicating or eliminating measles is a testament to how well we've done in vaccinating the world's children. But that's where the good news kind of ends because the premise of the new book, which will probably be out by the end of the year, is that we've seen now uh, a, a slowing or halting of those gains. And it's not happening universally by any measure, but uh, we're seeing these uh, foci of disease pop up in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and the Arabian Peninsula and parts of Central Latin America. And it tends, and if you look at what's driving it, it's not the usual things we think about in terms of driving disease, but instead it's where social and forces and other forces are combining in very unique ways. So 21st century forces, what we sometimes call Anthropocene forces where political instability is combining with climate change, urbanization, deforestation, or anti-science. And those little blue circles are the areas where you're seeing a confluence of multiple versions of, of those forces. It's a little bit abstract. Let me see if I can make it a little clearer if I talk, give you some case studies. So let's look what's going on in the Arabian Peninsula right, right now, where we're seeing this confluence of war, political collapse, climate change, and urbanization drive back up disease. So on the Arabian Peninsula, of course, we've had the uh, collapse of the health systems in Syria and Iraq due to the uh, former and current ISIS occupations. Same in Yemen, where you've got, uh, you've got now a proxy war between uh, Saudis and, and the Iranians. And this is causing a massive recrudescence or, or driving up of disease. So cholera, uh, across Yemen, some of maybe the worst cholera epidemic recorded in modern history, uh, thousands of deaths. We've got in Arabian and Syrian Iraq, the return of this disease on the, on the top there. The locals call it Aleppo evil. It's cutaneous leishmaniasis transmitted by sand flies and inoculates the parasite and causes this disfiguring ulcer on the face. Uh, that often leaves permanent scars, which is especially decimating for girls and women. And then 
you've got the, in both places, the dramatic return of vaccine preventable diseases, especially measles, which is the first return to return because of that high reproductive number because of the interruption in, in vaccination. At the bottom is a picture of the annual Hodge pilgrimage, which is also bringing in, introducing pathogens from across the Muslim world into, into Mecca. Uh, uh, and uh, I got involved in this in my role as U.S. Science Envoy in the Obama administration to look at how we can begin making vaccines for when collaboration with the Saudis uh, as well as uh, Morocco and Tunisia to see if we can uh, build vaccine capacity infrastructure because right now there's no ability to make vaccines uh, on the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, same in Venezuela, so for very different reasons with the collapse of the regime in Venezuela with, uh, due to first uh, with Hugo Chavez and then Maduro and the socioeconomic collapse. This has brought back measles. So the, the big the yellow uh, peak over here is the return of measles to Venezuela, even though previously Venezuela was a leader in disease control in South America. And now this is spilled over into Brazil. And so you can, here's a map from Pajo uh, where Dr. Salazar's uh, father worked and you can see uh, the uh, measles literally looks like it's dripping down from Venezuela into uh, the Amazon state of Brazil and then across the border into Colombia. And it's not only vaccine preventable diseases as there's fewer and fewer uh, uh, revenue generating occupations. Uh, there's uh, people are retreating into the gold mines and there they're sleeping outside being exposed, uh, hyper exposed to malaria and other vector borne diseases. So they're even calling these gold mines the malaria mines. So a 400% increase in malaria, uh, Leishmaniasis, Chagas disease. And then you're seeing decimation of indigenous populations as uh, people flee further and further into the remote areas. So the Yanomami uh, indigenous people living on the, on the Brazil-Venezuelan border now, high death rates of measles. Uh, and now COVID-19 is taken there and there's even talk about extinction of the Yanomami because of this as well as the Wayu indigenous people on the Colombia border. And we're seeing this in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa as well. Uh, Jeffrey Gittleman of the New York Times refers to these as the Africa unwars, uh, saying that rather than typical, what we usually think of as a war of between warring factions, which in fact is uh, groups uh, that are uh, really functioning like bandits on the civilian population, armed banditry on the civilian populations uh, up in the, the Boko Haram area of northern Nigeria or Democratic Republic of Congo, massive resurgence of uh, vaccine preventable disease and neglected diseases. Now you might say, well, why the heck do I have Texas and the Gulf Coast uh, on here? Well, part of that is because we're, we're seeing now this confluence of political collapse and urbanization, uh, not so much in Texas, but uh, with, we are seeing the combination of climate change and urbanization. So he, you know, if you look, talk to the climate change uh, scientists, they'll tell you that the Gulf Coast in Texas is disproportionately being affected. And we're seeing now a big increase in vector-borne diseases, uh, Chagas disease, dengue, Zika, chikungunya. And it's really important to make the point that it's not due to immigration across the southern border nearly as much as it is actually local transmission. So for instance, 10% of the dogs are infected with uh, Chagas disease. So this has become kind of a new normal where we're seeing this uh, 
this accelerated rise of disease due to these confluence of 21st century uh, forces. Now, um, we've also seen a shifting nature of poverty that's extremely interesting. And this is a new uh, instant book. This is not the book that I, the topic of my lecture, but an instant book that should be out this week or next week. And it's a version, it's an updated version of my 2016 book called Blue Marble Health. And there, this has to do with the fact that uh, we are seeing a disproportionate amount of poverty-related neglected diseases in the G20 countries. And, and you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense. If the G20 countries are the 20 wealthiest economies, why am I talking about poverty-related disease there? Well, it's the poor living among the wealthy in the G20 nations that now account for most of the world's uh, leishmaniasis, Chagas disease, uh, most of the uh, uh, leprosy, dengue, tuberculosis, and most of the, with a few exceptions, uh, most of the world's poverty-related and neglected diseases are now occurring in the G20 countries. So the fact that we've had COVID-19 predominantly in, in uh, the G20 countries, particularly the US, uh, Europe, and now, uh, and now of course Brazil in the G20, comes as no surprise. It very much goes along with that blue marble health uh, concept. Uh, so uh, what are we seeing now? Uh, well, this, this as, as you've been hearing a fair bit about now, the new SARS-2 coronavirus has a fair bit of resemblance to SARS-1. And we've been, one of the vaccine programs we've had over the last decade is a coronavirus vaccine program. And this SARS coronavirus 2 is similar to the first SARS virus and that it's about 80 to 90% uh, similar in terms of its genetic code. Both of them bind to the same ACE2 receptors in the lungs, although this new one, SARS-2, appears to be less lethal than, than SARS-1, except, of course, if you're a, in a high-risk age group, being older, uh, having diabetes, hypertension, uh, or obesity now as well, and also healthcare workers seem to be disproportionately uh, susceptible. And one of the major differences now between SARS-2 and SARS-1, I think, may ultimately turn out to be it's very tight, tighter binding to the ACE2 receptor. So some changes in the spike protein of the virus, and here's what that spike protein looks like. You've all seen cartoons of it, but here, here are these, these uh, spikes emanating out of the uh, envelope of the virus. This is what binds to the receptor. It appears to have a much tighter binding to the ACE2 receptor than SARS-1. And this is a, a, a expression level of the ACE2 receptor in different tissues. And I think this may explain a lot of the unique findings of, of SARS-2 that we're hearing about. So we're, uh, although it's initially uh, was, uh, the narrative was this is a primarily a pneumonia and a pulmonary disease, that's partly true, but we're also seeing tight binding now to the heart, the blood vessels, uh, adipose tissue, which has very high levels of the ACE2 receptor and the gastrointestinal tract. And maybe these are providing some of the links between uh, the cardiovascular disease and the vasculitis uh, and the links to obesity that we're seeing with uh, SARS-2. The other big difference between SARS-2 and SARS-1 is that SARS-2 seems to replicate in very high levels in the nasopharynx early in the course of the illness. 
even in asymptomatic individuals. Uh, so that accounts for those extraordinarily high reproductive number that we're seeing. The usual numbers you see quoted are between two and three, but there's some other uh, uh, maverick estimates that, that go as high as uh, 15, putting in, in, in the measles range. And again, it's associated with that high level of virus in the nasopharynx, and so that virus is shed during speech and, 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 other, uh, and, and, and other normal routines that asymptomatic people might, might engage in. So it's spreading virus across the community. We saw this a little bit with the original SARS, but only in a certain people with certain genetic polymorphisms did they have nasopharyngeal shedding uh, in the course of the illness. Otherwise, that was not really a big issue. So that was a major change that took the, the world off, uh, took the scientific world by surprise. And then of course the others are those with these underlying conditions, especially obesity, diabetes, and hypertension. So that, um, and this, this kind of presents this, what I call the Janus face of COVID-19. One group of people walking around asymptomatic seemingly fine, the others getting very sick uh, and also sometimes associated with sudden death, which I think is partly due to the thrombotic events so what's going to happen uh, with uh, COVID-19? Uh, we've been hearing about different models. The one that I'm paying particularly close attention to is the Harvard model and Mark Lipsitch's group at, at Harvard School of Public Health, who's been uh, identifying potential yearly waves of, uh, of uh, with this association with seasonal coronavirus during the winter months, January, February. And he's modeling this on the basis of some of the other upper respiratory coronavirus infections uh, that uh, as pediatricians we've known about for a long time. It's one of the, uh, it's in the differential of uh, what we ordinarily think of as, as the common cold, but there's a clear seasonality to that. And he's been modeling COVID-19 on that basis and predicting uh, regular spikes and waves uh, every winter. And that may be a pattern um, so we are now uh, looking at um, uh, what we can do about this, and uh, this is a slide from Dr. Fauci, who presented to the National Academy a couple of weeks ago on different uh, vaccine strategies. And we've been hearing about them on the news with either RNA or DNA vaccines or adenovirus platform vaccines, even live attenuated vaccines, nanoparticle vaccines and in our recombinant protein vaccine. And, and the point is all of them work pretty much by the same principle. They, they induce an immune response uh, against the spike protein. And the question is what's going to be the most efficient way to do that? Will it be is it through a, a virus vectored vaccine, uh, recombinant protein, nanoparticle, or genetic immunization? And there are different animal models that give you different signals, but the only real way to know is to start bringing these vaccines into clinical trials. So if you're serious about a rapid acceleration of a COVID-19 vaccine, you try to bring them together all at once. And, um, but all of them pretty much work, work by the same principle. And we're hoping we've just submitted our pre ind packet to the FDA and hopefully uh, we can make a difference there. Now, one of the things about our vaccine that we've developed at Texas Children's and Baylor College of Medicine is we're doing this as a collaboration with this organization here known as PATH. They're, they're, they used to be called the Program for Appropriate Technology and Health. They're a Seattle-based organization, uh, product development partnership that historically has been uh, supported by the Gates Foundation to 
developed the malaria vaccine for Africa, the meningococcal vaccine for Africa, and now we're uh, partnering with them for our COVID-19 vaccine because our platform actually uses a recombinant protein vaccine in yeast. And uh, that's important because it's the same technology used to make the hepatitis B vaccine all over the world. And that's made indigenously in places like India and Brazil. So we think ours may have the potential for being a global health uh, coronavirus vaccine uh, that uh, we need desperately as a low cost uh, uh, recombinant vaccine that could be easily transferred to low and middle income countries. And that's what we do at our Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development, low cost global health vaccines that we simultaneously do uh, capacity building uh, in these countries to teach them how to develop vaccines. So this is our portfolio. And we've always been, you know, since ever since I've known Juan, Dr. Dr. Salazar, we've, he's, he's known about our, our work on parasite vaccines and we've had many discussions with about them over the years. But around a decade ago, we partnered with, a, even though we're not virologists, we partnered with a group at the New York Blood Center that had a very innovative technology for making the receptor binding domains of uh, these coronavirus vaccines as vaccines that give higher level of neutralizing antibody without uh, a lot of the side effects that you sometimes hear about leading to immune enhancement. So we uh, partnered with them and uh, are now looking at how we can use this low cost vaccine to address what I think is going to be extremely devastating uh, across the, um, the global south. So this virus now, especially in the crowded urban area, so in Guayaquil and Ecuador, it's caused a lot of uh, destruction uh, high death rates. We're hearing, you know, pretty dramatic stories of bodies piling up in the streets. And now we're starting to see this in places like uh, Fortaleza and, and uh, in Belém and Manaus and Brazil. Uh, I would imagine Venezuela is getting hit very hard at this time. And I think it's not going to stop. I think this, as we proceed into the summer months, it could start moving into India and Bangladesh and potentially sub-Saharan Africa. Who's going to develop the vaccine? Group. So this is our uh, recombinant uh, candidate, which we call COVID-RBD-219N1, originally developed for SARS-1, but we think uh, it looks like it induces cross-protective neutralizing antibodies uh, to, to SARS-2. Uh, and uh, here's our, some of our data that we've put up recently in BioArchive, uh, very uh, high uh, neutralizing antibodies, both endpoint IgG types and neutralizing antibodies. Here's our neutralizing antibody. And you know, you might say, well, why do I focus so much on neutralizing antibody? That seems to be the, the closest, that's a correlate of protection. So Dan Baruch's group at Harvard Medical School has shown that um, it correlates pretty well with protection in laboratory animal models. And of course, neutralizing antibody refers to antibody that binds to the spike protein and prevents it from attaching to uh, host receptors and causing cytopathology in the laboratory. And that correlate seems to be extremely uh, promising. So we, we are excited about our vaccine and we're getting about 100% survival compared to the control animals. This is a transgenic mouse that we collaborated jointly with UTMB Galveston. The Galveston National Lab seems to cause uh, pretty dramatic uh, reductions in survival. So hopefully, you know, our vaccine can make a contribution uh, to the COVID-19, uh, uh, addressing the COVID-19 problem. The other thing that we worry about when we make 
COVID-19 vaccines is avoiding uh, certain types of immunopathology. And there are two types that people often conflate, but we think they're two different phenomena. One of them is this eosinophilic immune enhancement. And what happens is there with certain uh, COVID-19 vaccines, especially the virus vectored vaccines using modified uh, vaccinia anchor or vaccinia, you see upon challenge this huge infiltrate into the lungs of, that includes eosinophils. And because people see eosinophils, they often assume it's a Th2 type response. But what we're finding is it's more linked to Th17 responses a lot, with lots of IL-6, the kind of thing where you see eosinophils in patients with Crohn's disease, all other forms of inflammatory bowel disease, or ulcerative colitis, or uh, even with asthma, so that we actually find reductions uh, with alum. There is this other phenomenon of either non-neutralizing or neutralizing antibodies, facilitating uptake of the virus, and this is seen with dengue. I don't think this is gonna be a big issue with coronaviruses, uh, but again, people tend to combine the two, and I think they're actually uh, two very different phenomena. So this is an example of when we can produce immune enhancement in the lab or immunopathology, and we see this sometimes with the full-length spike protein, uh, this is immunohistochemistry staining of the eosinophils, and you can see lots of eosinophil enhancement. However, if uh, we use high amounts of alum in our receptor binding domain, we can pretty much remove it altogether. So we're, we're excited the fact that we can control this. And again, not many groups now in the rush to develop a COVID-19 vaccine are really looking at this in experimental models. I think we're one of the few groups that's taken the time to look for this. Now, um, as you all know, just from watching the news, uh, the president has, and the White House has uh, created this uh, very impressive program to accelerate uh, multiple COVID-19 candidates. Uh, and they're doing this by not only getting as many shots on goal as they can using the different technologies that I showed you, but also looking at how we can combine phase one and phase two trials or phase two and phase three trials number one and number two, no, second, number three is to do the manufacturing, what Dr. Fauci calls at risk, meaning that uh, even if we don't know if the vaccine works or not, we're going to scale up manufacturing. So we have it ready to go uh, in case uh, we have a vaccine candidate that looks promising. So phase three trials, uh, uh, there's, there's all sorts of phase one, phase two trials now underway hopefully ours included. The first phase three trial uh, will begin for the Moderna vaccine later uh, this summer, um, maybe July or August, and probably proceed at least for the next year. So sometime in the third quarter of 2021, we may have enough efficacy data and safety data in our first crop of vaccines to say that we might have some potential uh, candidates. I think the first ones out of the starting gate at best may be partially protective uh, so that they may be rolled out initially, but then they'll be replaced over time. And we've seen this with the Hib vaccine as I spoke about, and we saw it with the rotavirus vaccine, we saw it with the HPV vaccine where the first candidates out are not always the best ones and then they get replaced. One of the, the problems that we're seeing, early problems that we're seeing is with some of the messaging around these vaccines, we're hearing that vaccines may be ready by the fall or in days or in weeks, and that's absolutely not true. Uh, and then you have this unfortunate messaging, Operation Warp Speed. And I say unfortunate because, uh, and I've 
spoken at Connecticut Children's Medical Center before about the, the growing anti-vaccine movement that we've seen uh, in the United States. Um, that one alleges that vaccines cause autism, and I've spent a good part of my life refuting that because I have a, my youngest daughter, Rachel, has autism and intellectual disabilities, and I wrote this book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, that's put me up against the anti-vaccine lobby. But the other things they allege is that we uh, rush vaccines, we don't adequately test them for safety, and we also uh, um, uh, are, are have this uncozy relationship between the government and the pharma industry. And unfortunately, everything that you're hearing about Operation Warp Speed, even if it's not true, is playing right into the hands of the anti-vaccine movement. So, you know, in parallel to what's going on with all the exciting science, we're also seeing a rise in anti-science. And now, the anti-vaccine protesters are have joined now these uh, libertarian groups, especially in Texas, uh, which is uh, you know, bucking up against the social distancing mandates and being very defiant uh, about this and, and now targeting scientists. So I'm a little worried we're gonna start to see this rise in anti-science, especially as we proceed uh, to the 2020 fall election. Uh, something I never thought would happen. I originally thought, you know, as people started clamoring for COVID-19 vaccines, uh, we would, um, uh, it would help uh, give a knockout blow to the anti-vaccine movement. And in many respects, it's energized for all the reasons that I've talked about. So we've now had this problem for the last few years in 2019. The World Health Organization listed vaccine hesitancy as one of its top health threats and because they saw this return of measles uh, across Europe with more than 100,000 uh, cases of parents deliberately opting their kids out of getting vaccinated. And this all began uh, 20 years before uh, with a fake paper that was retracted from the Lancet, but it took 12 years for the paper to get retracted by Andrew Wakefield and his colleagues claiming that the of our, the, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, the attenuated live virus vaccine, especially the measles component, had the ability to replicate in the colon and cause what they called pervasive developmental disorder, which was what we called autism uh, back then. And, and now we've seen this take off in Texas uh, in a serious way where, where I am. We're up to now 65,000 kids not getting vaccinated and this doesn't account of the, to, of the hundreds of thousands of homeschooled kids. And particularly in Austin, uh, we're seeing this is a huge problem right now. They tend to be among uh, communities that are more affluent and even educated, but educated in the sense of downloading massive amounts of misinformation. Um, so uh, we started looking into this a few years back, even though we're not even funded to do it, uh, to see if this is just a Texas phenomenon. And what we've identified is about a uh, at least a dozen urban areas, uh, mostly in the western part of the country. So Maricopa County's Phoenix, Salt Lake City. Uh, this is uh, King County, uh, Washington, which is Seattle. And what we're seeing are, are high rates of kids being opted out by their parents not to vaccinate their children. And this helped lead to the return of measles uh, back uh, uh, last year. Uh, after we pretty much eliminated it uh, pr prior to that. So I am worried about what we're seeing now. 
uh, not only because of COVID-19, but also the potential return of measles. Unfortunately, the other thing that's happened, uh, and I've been writing about this, is that with the emergency order, a lot of a lot of parents are not bringing their kids to the pediatrician. So we are starting to see steep declines in the number of kids getting their measles vaccine. I think some of that will bounce back, but um, that combined with this existing anti-vaccine movement gives me a lot of uh, pause for concern. Um, we are seeing this aggressive rise of what I call the four-headed anti-vax monster. Uh, a lot of this being led by this organization here known as Children's Health Defense, which is an unfortunate name. It's, it's headed by RFK Jr. Uh, and uh, they are uh, creating demonstrations across the country. They're putting out documentaries. This new one just came out called Vax to the People's Truth, using very inflammatory imagery, Holocaust imagery, calling vaccines the next Holocaust, and you know, total, uh, uh, totally offensive kinds of stuff parading around the Austin State Capitol last year, wearing yellow Jewish stars with no Vax written in, in Hebrew-like letters. Uh, this is a, a pretty scary and very aggressive and very powerful and well-funded movement. Uh, they now dominate the internet. Uh, so there's more than 480 anti-vaccine misinformation sites out there. They've, they've taken over Amazon. You can even do this on your laptop while you're listening to me, which is if you go to the Amazon site, go to put in books up at the top, uh, then press return, you'll get a scroll down menu at the left. That includes health, fitness, and dieting. You click on that again to vaccinations, and these are what you get. You know, a lot of them are kids' books. Sarah doesn't want to be vaccinated. Melanie's marvelous measles. I mean, the Amazon is not the single lar largest promoter of fake anti-vaccine books. There's this one, How to End the Autism Epidemic, which pretty much says if you get rid of me and Stan Plotkin, you can end the autism uh, epidemic, or it targets the HPV vaccine. You also have this very aggressive anti-vaccine political machine now operating in multiple states where they've created PACs, political action committees. So you have Texans for vaccine choice, Oklahomans for vaccine choice. And I know in Connecticut, they've been very active now as, as well, lobbying state legislators to make it, legislatures to make it hard, harder and harder to vaccinate our kids, easier to opt out. There's also been this sort of predatory behavior targeting specific ethnic groups like the Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, with Holocaust imagery or the African-American community in Harlem now, they're targeting, uh, saying that vaccines are the next Tuskegee experiment, uh, even though we know in New York last year, uh, measles had 18 kids in the intensive care unit. And then there's the specific targeting of girls and women with the HPV vaccine. They put out this document, 25 Reasons to Avoid Gardasil Vaccine, all made up, you know, things like saying that, Gardasil causes teenage suicide and depression, no evidence for that. So whereas in Australia, they now, now have launched a big campaign to eliminate cervical cancer by the year 2030 in the US, we're basically condemning a generation of girls and women to cervical cancer. So this is how, how I got involved because uh, one of the books that I wrote uh, is called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. That's my daughter, Rachel, uh, who, uh, grew up in uh, Cheshire, Connecticut when I was uh, on, the, on the faculty at Yale. And um, it's, it's been a tough ride because now they're, you know, they've co-opted the COVID-19 issue and then turned it around to their advantage to the point now where Reuters just came out with a document saying that 25% of 
Americans will not take the COVID-19 vaccine, even if they're made available, because of the anti-vaccine movement and their unwarranted fears about it. And now we're working with a group at City University in New York to show that we may not be able to vaccinate a sufficient percentage of the U.S. population in order to induce herd immunity. So that one of the two goals of the COVID-19, two of the goals of the COVID-19 vac vaccine are one to uh, uh, prevent people from getting sick and reduce hospitalizations and death, but the other interrupt transmission. And we may not be able to achieve our second endpoint. And I partly, you know, blame us as a scientific community that we've not been out there as much as we should combating anti-science movements. Things are a little better now because now you can turn on CNN and MSNBC or Fox News and hear directly from scientists. And I do think that is making a difference. Up, up right before then, Research America had done this survey. They're a policy group in DC that's find that the vast majority of Americans cannot name a living scientist. Hopefully that's, that side will improve, but we are going to see this rise in anti-science movements. Finally, um, we are now looking to see how we can expand our portfolio of vaccines to help other countries build capacity and uh, get vaccines made locally because one of the big problems that we have with the COVID-19 vaccine is whether we can uh, make enough doses of, of these vaccines uh, uh, to vaccinate 7 billion people or at least the 4 billion adults. And I've been pushing hard for the last few years on this concept of vaccine diplomacy. And it started when Albert Sabin developed the oral polio vaccine in the 1950s. Many people don't realize that he developed it jointly with Soviet scientists at the height of the Cold War. So there was two countries put aside their ideologies to work together to build life-saving vaccines. And, uh, and that led to the uh, vaccination of the entire cohort of Soviet school children, 10 million school children in the 1950s it was shown to be safe and effective and then licensure of the vaccine. So two countries putting aside their ideologies uh, to work together. So I took this on, uh, try to institute, implement modern day vaccine science diplomacy. Uh, in the Obama administration, he asked me to uh, become US science envoy for vaccines in the Middle East and other Muslim majority countries. So we began partnership with Malaysia and Saudi Arabia and several other nations where we're building vaccine development capacity uh, to jointly uh, produce these vaccines. And among them are vaccines for parasitic worm infection. So this is our hookworm and schistosomiasis vaccine program. Uh, and you can see why we're doing this in the nonprofit sector. There is not, uh, these are predominantly lower income uh, nations where we see diseases like hookworm and schistosomiasis. And um, we use a, uh, a reverse vaccinology approach, identifying uh, uh, targets either on the surface of the parasite or those involved in parasite blood feeding, and then screen them with serum from resistant patients. And we've identified a cohort of very promising uh, polypeptides uh, that we've, uh, uh, from, from these hel complicated helminth parasites, including some on the surface that look like very good vaccine antigens. So this is one that we've now finished our phase one trial on. This is done in collaboration with the Vaccine Trial Evaluation Unit. This is our schistosomiasis vaccine. We have similar results with our hookworm vaccine. And we're getting um, 
pretty good uh, mean antibody titers. The problem has been uh, two problems. One, adjuvant access, because we don't have access to uh, all of the adjuvants that are available from the big pharma companies like GSK or Merck. So we have to use uh, open access ones that um, uh, look promising, but may not be the best ones that we could get out there. So this is uh, one that we've had a nice uh, relationship with the uh, a nonprofit organization known as IDRI, the Infectious Disease Research Institute in Seattle. And we've partnered with them to develop our vaccine on alum together with a glucopranosyl lipidase. This is a TLR4 agonist and getting good antibody titers. Then we're also getting stuck where in which we can get to phase one, phase two, uh, but then we have trouble raising the capital to get all the way to phase three clinical trials and licensure. So that's been uh, problematic as well, getting, getting to the finish line as a nonprofit uh, uh, organization. We also uh, are, uh, this is our hookworm vaccine program that targets uh, the blood feeding apparatus of the hookworm. And this is how I began as an MD-PhD student. Talk about the length of time it takes to develop a vaccine. Now we have our vaccine in phase two uh, clinical trials uh, in Uganda and in and Brazil uh, as well. This is our Chagas disease vaccine, which is an immunotherapeutic vaccine where we can uh, inhibit, uh, it's a recombinant protein inhibits the onset of fibrosis that you see with Chagasic uh, heart disease. Uh, and that's one of the problems that you have with the benzinidazole and helminthic drugs. They seem to work uh, pretty well uh, in reducing parasite load, but it doesn't stop the progression of fibrosis due to the uh, ongoing presence of parasites in the heart. And our immunotherapy seems to help quite a bit with that. And this is our timeline. We're hoping to be in phase one trials uh, by next year. And we're doing this with a consortium of Mexican institutions supported by the Clayburg Foundation. Then we have a leishmaniasis vaccine. Uh, this is to stop what the locals call Aleppo evil, and uh, it's, this is supported by the Department of Defense. And um, here we've partnered with uh, Uniform Services University and the NIH uh, to take two candidates, one from the parasite, the other one from the sandfly, because Jesus Valenzuela's group has shown the uh, important immunomodulatory effects of the sandfly. So you need both antigens in order to stop uh, transmission. So uh, I'll end here and hopefully uh, leave a little time for questions to say that, you know, we're in a bit of an epic struggle right now. We, you know, we are making progress developing our vaccines, but we're up against a lot of 21st century forces, um, poverty, climate change, war, political collapse, urbanization, and now anti-science. And an important message, I think, for some of the younger physicians, the residents, the fellows that, you know, think about uh, shaping some of the things you're doing in, in the policy realm, because it's the biomedical model alone is not going to help us combat all of these forces. And, you know, unfortunately, in medical school and residency education, we, you don't get you don't really hear about war and political collapse, urbanization, anti-science, climate change, and poverty. And that's why it's important, you know, to being part of a greater university like the University of Connecticut to think about how you can, we can partner for some of these activities. So one, I'll, I'll stop there and, and see maybe uh, if there are some. If, 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 Thank you. 
<clears throat> Thank you, Peter. That was uh, amazing, as always. Uh, you, it's thought-provoking, hopefully, for the, as you mentioned, the younger generation to, so they can get involved with, uh, with some of these activities. And so we do have a, a number of questions, Peter, and uh, we'll begin with uh, uh, the first one is, uh, do we know what class of antibodies are likely to be protected for vaccines for viruses, uh, IgA, IgG, IgM, uh, like, you know, so virus, respiratory viruses is specifically what they're asking. So do we know which type of antibodies is more, more likely to be protective? Well, I think it's going to really depend on antibody that uh, has that capacity for virus neutralization. That's, you know, that our models for SARS clearly show that. And now Dan Baruch's, uh, Dan Baruch's uh, studies in non-human primates at Harvard Medical School are pretty much showing the same thing. Correlates with virus neutralizing antibody. Looks like mostly IgG. Uh, so I think that's that's probably what's, what's going to turn out. So it's all... I think it turned out to be an exercise in inducing high levels of, of IgG neutralizing uh, antibody. And that's very helpful when you're thinking about the different candidates that you're hearing about. So for instance, you know, some of the DNA and RNA vaccines are not necessarily set up to induce high levels of neutralizing antibody. So I might favor those less over, for instance, the two new Merck vaccine candidates that got announced today. One of them's in a VSV vector vesicular uh, stomatitis virus vector, which was used for the Ebola vaccine, another an attenuated measles vector. We know those give high levels of neutralizing antibodies, so that would be promising, provided they're safe. We also know that uh, that virus vectored vaccines are more prone to, to uh, immune enhancement. So this is why it's going to be really important not to rush things and to uh, accelerate things thoughtfully. Yeah, one of the comments that I've uh, that I've been asked about, or if, uh, is the the fact that we now have this new inflammatory syndrome in children, and we've seen we've seen many here at Connecticut Children's now, and uh, and one of the questions that comes up is, will will the uh, the immunoglobulin, the IgG that is uh, induced by any vaccine, potentially could that potentially lead to to an inflammatory syndrome? And and you know that's obviously a concern that I have. Uh, I have no evidence to support that, but what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And so does that mean we don't make a pediatric vaccine and or will we induce it in adults? And this is why I think you know, using this language like Operation Warp Speed is, uh, and this push, uh, we have to be really careful and why you don't want to rush this too much and why you want to spend the time to do a real phase three study with 25,000, 30,000 patients, because if you get it wrong, it could have devastating consequences, number one. And not only for uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine, we've seen historically how if there's loss of confidence in a, in a vaccine, it, it spills over into other vaccines as well. We saw that with swine flu. We saw it in the 1970s. We saw it in the Philippines uh, with what happened with concerns about uh, a dengue vaccine. It basically halted the measles vaccination program resulting in thousands of deaths. So absolutely, this is something that we really need to watch for in, uh, as we proceed in our phase three trial. So this idea that you're hearing from some that we're gonna have this by the fall, uh, I certainly hope not because I think there's no way you're gonna get the adequate amount of safety and efficacy data you're gonna need to assure the public that you've got a vaccine that only works, but that's also safe. 
Another question about uh, safety. How safe uh, are the mRNA vaccines? Uh, the anti-vaxxers claim that this introduces novel material into our bodies and can change our DNA. Yeah, I, you know, for the mRNA vaccines and the DNA vaccines, I'm actually a lot less worried about safety. I think they've, they've so far had a good safety profile. I'm just concerned that they tend not to induce very high levels of neutralizing antibody. And so for, you know, so for some, I worry more about safety for others. I, you know, there's no one perfect vaccine. You show me any of the vaccine candidates and I'll tell you what I like about it, what I don't like about it. And with the uh, nucleic acid vaccines, what I like about them is so far, they look like they're, they've been pretty safe in laboratory animals and, and in people in the limited clinical trial so far. What I don't like about it is they don't seem to give really high levels of neutralizing antibody. Maybe these ones will be different. Uh, the other problem with the mRNA vaccines, they tend not to induce high levels of cytotoxic T lymphocytes, which you may also need as, need as well. So I'm less uh, enthusiastic about the mRNA and DNA vaccines, but you know, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see how these things proceed. Uh, this is from uh, uh, your colleague, John Shriver, who's now uh, head of infectious disease here at Connecticut Children's. You remember John? Hi, John, how are you? It says, hi, Peter. Some have found expressing proteins from RNA viruses in yeast to be challenging. Have you solved this problem? Um, well, it's always a problem. Uh, it's always a problem. It's a problem with yeast expression. It's a problem in several folds. One, yield, getting, because, you know, sometimes you get really high yields like we've been getting. Other times you're not always as lucky and you have to tweak things a bit. The other problem is uh, glycosylation. And so sometimes you have to change some of the amino acids. Like we had to do this with our uh, COVID-19 vaccine. We actually got rid of the N-terminal amino acid that was a glycosylated amino acid. And that actually, surprisingly, that increased production yield as well. Also from one of your colleagues, from Justin Radel, says, hi, Peter, what do you think of COVID-19 vaccine trials in which immunized volunteers would be challenged with a live SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, I've been asked about that a lot. And now we're on the uh, NIH active group. And I think we're going to issue a, um, a, I don't know if it's consensus, but a, a statement from the group. And, and the thinking is that we don't, you know, we've worked on challenge models in the past. They actually take quite a long time to set up. They're not quick uh, because you have to uh, work out the dose of virus and you have to make it consistent. You have to produce the virus under GMP in order to get it, uh, the green light for the FDA. You also have to work out the mode of, of administration. Is it by aerosol? Is it by droplet? How are you going to measure responses? What happens if patients get sick? I think the thing that actually scares me the most uh, would be some of the, uh, the coagulopathies that we've been seeing, the thrombotic events, the, 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 the DVTs, the pulmonary emboli, the... Um, uh, the stroke and coronary thrombosis. We don't really know how to control that. So that, that gives me pause for concern. But I think the big issue is the timelines it takes. I think we may, in this case, get the answer faster in a phase three trial than we would through human challenge studies. So I'm not as convinced that human challenge studies are on the critical path, but things may stall and with, with the phase threes, in which case, you know, having that proceed might be useful. So one thought is work out challenge models uh, for some of the human, other human coronaviruses uh, that don't cause severe disease, some of the upper respiratory coronaviruses, and get that all in place 
so that if we need it, we could hit the ground running. And that may be a, a, a safer uh, alternative at this point. So there's some thought about doing that. So a couple of more questions, Peter. The, this is from, uh, from our chief of ophthalmology. Uh, how can science help guide us in navigating the tension between profit, investment, and vaccine hope? I am thinking about the hype surrounding the mRNA vaccines, which show promise, but have not been peer reviewed and historically viewed with skepticism. Yeah, so I've, um, I've, I've been not the most person, not the most critical of Moderna and what they're doing, but, uh, you know, trying, you know, it's a, it's a balance because you want to, you want to do things in the right way. And if colleagues do things you don't like, be, be guarded in your criticism either because it'll, it stimulates the anti-vaccine movement. So I've not been happy um, with, the, with the way Moderna's behaved in terms of not uh, having their data published ahead of time. That press release that they sent out a week or so ago is very confusing um, for an, on a number of fronts. And you know, that's not how we do science. We don't do science by press release. So I understand they, they're going to publish something uh, this, they're coming out with something this week. I've heard that, but we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. And I, and I hope that's true. But, you know, all the other stuff, the conflicts of interest, the, the dumping of stock and all this kind of stuff. You know, when these companies send out press releases, they're, they write them for their shareholders and their investors. They're not writing it for you and me or the audience for CNN, but they've been a bit, and others as well, have been a bit tone deaf to the impact of that. And so I, I don't know what happened there. I think, you know, when the contracts were signed with the U.S. government, because U.S. taxpayer money is helping to support a fair bit of this, there should have been some stipulations about how this stuff should have been messaged. And I've been talking to people in NIH and the White House that we really need a vaccine communication strategy, because so far there's been a number of missteps that are going to come back to haunt us because people, oh, and the U.S. government's been doing this for a few years, they underestimate the terrible impact the anti-vaccine movement and the power and the reach that the anti-vaccine movement has. Maybe, maybe I'm too close to it because I'm public enemy number one. They've just labeled me now the, um, I have a new name. I'm the OG villain, the original gangster villain. I had to look it up what that meant. So, um, so there you are. The new Halloween, uh, the Peter Hotes uh, customer. So, right. Uh, Peter, uh, just a closing comment for, for the audience and for all of us in terms, you know, I always try to finish with a sense of, uh, the, you know, the belief in American ingenuity, human ingenuity, that we will make it through this. So based on what you're seeing, tell us, uh, give us the, your sense of, of tomorrow or hope, of what, how, how this is going to turn out. Well, my, my answer is, you know, there's a reason we've been investing $36 billion a year in the NIH. Uh, we will have we will have COVID-19 vaccines uh, that work uh, and are uh, likely going to be safe as well. I mean, the, the technical feat to do this is not nearly as complicated as uh, other, not nearly as complicated as an HIV vaccine or others. You, you induce an immune response to the spike protein, and you'll get protection, especially neutralizing antibodies. And that's also true of some of the monoclonal antibody therapies. I think of I think we'll clearly have those. I think, you know, some of the hyperimmune globulins, convalescent plasma, uh, antiviral drugs. You know, it, uh, Carl uh, Zimmer for the, writes for the New York Times and writes a lot. He's an excellent science writer. 
calls the SARS-2 coronavirus a clumsy virus. And I think he's right, it is. It's not that daunting a target. It's just trying to do this so quickly in the middle of a pandemic. That's the hard part, but we, we will solve this. And I think we'll, we'll come out better uh, on the other end. And I think it's also uh, a message though for the young pediatricians that you have a lot of power, your voice is a lot of power, not only in terms of taking care of your patients, but your impact on the community and your impact to affect change at the policy level. And uh, don't underestimate, don't underestimate what you can do. Well, Peter, thank you very much. Uh, I know you're very busy. You're probably going back to uh, you know, CNN uh, in about a half an hour, so I'll see you there. And uh, <laughs> looking forward to your, to your comments. Uh, uh, amazing work, not just for, for this virus, but for every other disease that is neglected and not paid attention that are really true pandemics that have been going on for decades. So, so thank you, Peter. I hope we bring you back soon. Uh, stay safe. Uh, we'll certainly protect you and uh, speak on your behalf. And for the audience, thank you for joining us at this late hour. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you again next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.